All right, good morning, church family. My name is Tim Thetford. I am one of the staff elders here, staff elder of counseling and discipleship. And first things first, yes, I did get a haircut. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yes. Uh, Second of all, I did watch part of the World Cup this morning. I did not see how it ended. So if you love me, please don't tell me how it ended. I will watch it after the service. All right. Last week, Clay began with the question, what is the worst day you've ever had? Now, it's Christmas time. People are buying presents. We have all these beautiful decorations. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in a little bit of a chipper direction, a little more uh, uh, happy direction, all right? I'm going to ask the question, what was your most memorable Christmas gift? Now, um, my parents were, small, were smart when I was a, a kid. They would put out some unwrapped Christmas gifts uh, so we would come out early and we would start playing with them. I think the real reason was that they would get some extra sleep, right? Which was super, super smart. Um, except for, I think when I was around two years old, mom, mom's here today and she, she con uh, confirmed this for me last night. Uh, yeah, I got this, which was, if you, if you watch The Lone Ranger, this was the deluxe trigger original wonder horse, right? And this thing was awesome. But now this was the mid-70s, and so uh, safety was not a high priority. <laughs> so it came with these high-tension finger pinchers right here. That's what those are. And then if you rocked it back really hard, you could catapult a small child across the room with it. Uh, but nevertheless, they woke up that morning to clankety, 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 clankety. Uh, I was very excited, uh, but no, no children were harmed, thankfully. Another Christmas morning, I woke up to this. Yes, $6 million man, right? Steve Austin, astronaut, barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Ba -da -da! made this like it, it clicking sound with his arm, click, 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 right? You could look in the back of his eye, the back of his head, and there was a little magnifying glass in his hot eye. So cool. And then finally, uh, one of the, the Christmas after I saw Star Wars in the theaters, the original Star Wars before it was A New Hope, right? Uh, I woke up and there was lightsabers there. But these weren't the cool, like, uh, Disneyland uh, lightsabers that you can buy today. These weren't even, like, the hard plastic lightsabers. This was, uh, this was what I got. It was essentially a flashlight with, like, a blow-up yellow tube on it. And by the time they woke up, my brother and I had beat each other to death with them, and they were popped. They were ruined, yeah. All right. Today, we continue our Advent series, The Weary World Rejoices. Advent is the time of year when Christians have traditionally meditated on the coming of Christ. The entirety of the Old Testament points us to, it awakens us to the expectation of the coming of the Messiah, so that John the Baptist would leap in his mother's womb at the announcement of Christ, that Mary and Joseph, though bewildered at times, ultimately thankful 
waited for his birth. Angels on the day of his anticipated arrival would proclaim glory to God in the highest. Wise astrologers would seek him out and worship the newborn king. It's also a time when Christians await the second coming of Christ, the return again in glory. So today's sermon is is the fourth in our Advent series. It's on love, and my hope is that it would be an encouragement. Rejoice, brothers and sisters in Christ, that God loves you and that His love is demonstrated through the gift of the incarnation, through the coming of Christ. So how does the incarnation demonstrate God's love for us? Well, today I hope to show you that the gift of God's love is intentional, that God's gift of love is personal, and that God's gift of love is unbreakable. So the incarnation simply means in the flesh, right? So we say carne asada, right? Delicious, delicious carne asada. All right, maybe not the best analogy, but this is where we get words like carnivore or carnal or, okay. It means it's about the birth and the life of Christ. The second person of the Trinity, God sent the Son to enter into the world in human form. The creator of the universe is born in a stable in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The perfect, powerful, holy, and eternal God is born into a smelly and hostile and sinful world. And he could have come any way he wanted. He didn't have to come at all. He could have taken any form, any shape, at any time, and he comes in the vulnerable form of a human baby. John 3.16 says, "For For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so because God loves the world, the Father sends the Son. It is for God's good pleasure that he sends Jesus to the world as a gift of love. And so the incarnation, it demonstrates God's love for us because God's gift of love is intentional. Have you ever uh, given a gift that took real planning, or maybe been given a gift where you can see the intentionality, the planning behind it? Maybe maybe it was even a a scavenger hunt to find the gift, right? A really good gift involves detail. It involves thought. Um, It could be like a surprise marriage proposal. And so a friend of ours just proposed, and he wanted it to be a total surprise, which is super hard to do nowadays because you got to have photographers and videographers and, uh, I don't know, producers and directors. It's, it's crazy. Any poor girl getting close to a proposal, she's always got her hair done and her nails done. She's wearing a, night out, a nice outfit anywhere she goes when she leaves the house. Not like back in my day. Uh, I feel like, a, like an old guy, like, you whippersnappers, you don't understand. It was a guy and it was a girl and a ring the way God intended it, right? <laughs> so for, for, his, for, for his proposal to be a surprise, this is what he did. He contacted a photographer. The photographer contacted the girl, said, hey, I, here's a free photo shoot. And she gets excited. Yeah, 
I know, I know, I'm going to dress my boyfriend up and, and we'll get all dressed up. So they dress up. He's, she's telling her, oh, come on, you got you to get ready. You got to go. So they go. They take some photos. And then he, of course, proposes. And it was a big surprise. I thought it was genius. I called it the inception proposal. <laughs> For me, there's no greater defense of the Christian faith than the demonstration of God's consistent revelation of his plan, his plan of redemption throughout Scripture, seen in the types and the shadows of Christ. For me, this is the clearest, most powerful apologetic for the reliability of truth of an all-knowing God and an all-powerful God. The intentionality in which God, he prepares and he incorporates and he sets the stage and he prophesies and then he fulfills all of it in Christ. And these themes are seen throughout the Bible. They're themes of kingdom, themes of light, of adoption, of bread, of exile, of harvest. And that's just to name a few. All right, today we're going to take a look at one example, priesthood. And so hang in with, hang in with me. Uh, it, it's, it's a lot. And uh, I'm going to try and connect for you guys the priesthood, which incorporates the sacrifices and the temple. And I made these really cool graphics, and I spent a lot of time on them, and there's going to be a lot of words up there. And if that's helpful for you, that was my intention. If it's distracting for you, I'm sorry. That's what my wife told me about first service, okay? <laughs> All right, we're going to start in Exodus and uh, the clearest presentation <laughs> of the priesthood, right? Aaron's sons from the cursed tribe of Levi are given no land of their own. Instead, they're called to be priests, right? Priests in the tabernacle and later in the temple. These priests were to be set apart. They were to be holy, and God chose them. They were to be ceremonially clean for the role that they would play in the life of Israel, the responsibilities of the, police would, of the priests would be as mediators between God and man. And so God's presence, ever-presence in the temple, was demonstrated by a cloud and by fire. So this temple, the tabernacle, was the dwelling place of God. It was where his priests would perform sacrifices to restore God's people to himself. Separated by man's sin, God instructed the, the artists and the, and the architects to construct a place where God's holiness would intersect with man's sinfulness. The priests would act on God's behalf to restore God's people to himself. They would, intercede, they would intercede with animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins and easy for me to say, reconciliation with God. The priests would lead the people in worshiping God and teaching God's word. And as you read through it, I'm struck by, I, I hope you're struck by, the, the excruciating detail in which God instructs how the tabernacle was to be built, how it was to be constructed, how it was to be decorated by Israel's master craftsmen. And so the beauty and the detail of the designs point back to the Garden of Eden, where God communed with Adam and Eve in perfect harmony. The garden was then the first temple, and Adam was God's first priest. And you might say, well, why do you say that? Well, God spoke to Adam, 
The expectation was that Adam would teach Eve, and then his children, and then the entire world God's commands as a means of having right relationship with him, that he would be his holy representative. And this meant living a holy life, giving thanksgiving to God, spreading God's glory through dominion to the ends of the earth. Adam was chosen. He was literally created for the purpose that we will later see is the responsibility of the priest. Tragically, when the serpent uh, tempted Eve, Adam is there and he says nothing. When Eve first ate of the fruit, Adam disobeyed as well. And so Adam and Eve sinned and Adam failed as a priest. When they realized they were naked, God has to intervene. He offers a sacrifice to clothe them and cover them. God instituted this uh, sacrifice to make atonement for their sins. A shedding of blood was necessary. Adam and Eve were then spared death, but they were kicked out of the garden. They were cut off from eternal life. Later, Noah, also God's chosen priest, God revealed to him this plan of redemption. Ultimately, Noah would would be a priest solely for his family. No one else, uh, uh, everyone else rejected God. Everyone else mocked Noah. And so God's plan of preservation was for his family, but also for animals. And so they're brought onto the, the ark. Noah brings extra animals for sacrifice. He trusts that God is going to get him through the storm, and he does. And so in gratitude for God's goodness, the first thing that he does is he builds an altar and he sacrifices these animals. It would be not be good if he sacrificed the animals that were then supposed to reproduce, and yeah, you get it. All right, Adam, Abraham was, was also chosen by no merit of his own, by God from out among the Canaanites to be God's priest to his people. And God promises to bless Abraham that his inhabitants would be greater than the stars in the sky. God, uh, this promise, God actually walks through severed animals as, as again, as cloud and smoke to, to consecrate this promise. Despite Abraham and his wife being, being very old, not having any kids, God blesses them with Isaac. God later then says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac bore the wood of the sacrifice on his back, and he walked three days uh, through the land of Moriah. Abraham was justified by his faith, and he trusted God would provide a way back for Isaac. God was faithful to his promise, and he stopped Abraham's hand. He rescued Isaac, and he provided a substitute. All right. Coming on, uh, continuing on through the Old Testament, uh, we come to the Israelites in Egypt, and Pharaoh wouldn't allow them to go free. God uh, redeemed his people out of slavery using ten plagues. The last of the ten plagues was a death sentence for any firstborn male. Under Moses' priestly intercession, Israel had to trust God. They had to carefully follow his commands, or even the oldest Hebrew child would have died. God's instructions meant trusting in the blood of an innocent lamb, one free from defect, as the means by God would pass over Israel, protect them from his judgment, 
his wrath. So then God gave his Ten Commandments to Moses as the rules by which Israel would have a relationship with God. Israel was called to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood distinct from all other nations. They were called to be a light that reflected the very character of the God that they followed. Israel was to live differently from everyone around them in ceremonial purity, even in the things that they ate. But Moses fails as well, and he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Israel's story is one of obedience and the rebellion and then trust and then idolatry over and over again. David, an unconventional priest, would often perform the functions of the priesthood, uh, blessing and teaching God's law. He led the worship of God through psalms, through praise. David desired to build a temple, but a place for the Ark of the Covenant, but it would be ultimately his son that would build that temple. Sadly, David, a man after God's own heart, would fail as well. Now we've come full circle. We're back to talking about the Levitical priests. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would purify himself, and then he would go behind a thick curtain into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the temple, where God's presence was, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on behalf of the people, he would go there and he would sprinkle the blood of animals onto the mercy seat to atone for himself and to atone for the people of God. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, Tim, there's a lot of blood and sacrifice talk for a Christmas sermon. I'm realizing I shouldn't give Clay such a hard time. But yes, the visceral reaction that we have to death, especially a gruesome death, even the death of animals, is the reaction that God wants us to have to our own sin against Him. Of course, this isn't always our reaction. We love our sin at times. But this is the picture that God paints for us. He says, this is ghastly reality. This is the reality of sin. Sin is death and destruction, whether we see it that way or not. So, why have we been so focused uh, on the Old Testament in a sermon about the life of Jesus? Well, Jesus reveals to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, He says that all of the Old Testament is about Him. Paul refers to this as the mystery kept secret, now revealed. This is why Paul, at every opportunity, would go into the synagogue and he would contend for, he would argue for, using the Old Testament, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had fulfilled all that was promised. So Jesus is the Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the pure and spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He is our substitute. He is the firstborn that dies. His blood is for our protection. He brings us out of exile and slavery. Through him, we are restored as God's people and brought into the kingdom of God. Jesus is Isaac's replacement. He is God's only son who would carry the cross, be the scapegoat sent outside of the gates as well as the ultimate sacrifice at Golgotha and rise again, returning on the third day as the permanent solution for sin. The place that Abraham calls the Lord will provide is where Solomon would place the temple, 
near where the cross of Calvary would one day be. Jesus is also the temple, the dwelling place of God. He is God present. He is Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Jesus said of his own body, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. It's not only Jesus' blood that is the propitiation sprinkled on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the place of atonement. The place that takes God's wrath for sin and removes it for his people. At Jesus' death, the curtain is torn in two. The writer of Hebrews says that we who are his, can have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. Jesus is the great high priest. Like the Levites, Jesus was cursed without land, rich in heavenly terms, but having no earthly possessions. Instead of a daily or yearly sacrifice, Jesus As the fulfillment of the great high priest, he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is a servant of God the Father, set apart, holy. He is pure, and he is the purifier. He is the mediator between God and man. All right, thanks for hanging in there with me. I know that was a lot, but there is so much more that I could say. This is a graphic of all the cross-references in the Bible. The books of the Bible are are along the bottom there. And so, starting uh, with Genesis all the way to Revelation, you can see these connections. You can see these cross-references. There are 63,779 colorful links in this image. There are 66 books of the Bible written by 40 different authors on three different continents over 1,500 years. Guys, this isn't a coincidence. This isn't just uh, a fluke. This isn't an accident. There's a great quote by Kierkegaard that says, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. Don't refuse to believe what is true. The incarnation of Christ also demonstrates God's love for us because God's gift of love is personal. And so a good gift is is personal. It demonstrates that you know the person, that you know their likes and their dislikes and their favorites. And so if you find that one thing that maybe they don't know about, right, or maybe um, they can't afford, or maybe they wouldn't splurge on themselves, and you know, you know their likes, you know they would love that, that's a good gift, because you know them personally. It has meaning. Greg Craycraft is uh, a good gift giver. Often he'll give me a gift and he'll just say, hey, I, I saw this and I thought of you, because I know that you like this color. Uh, he's given me board shorts that it's like, he just said, these look like you. And I was like, sweet, that's awesome. Greg's a guy that will, if he knows your taste in music, he will just, he will play a song that maybe you haven't heard, that he thinks you will like. Anyone who knows Greg, he he gets more excited to give the gift at times than the person who is receiving the gift. 
especially impactful are gifts also uh, when you're in real need. If you've ever been in real need or given to someone, you know how powerful that can be. God knows our every thought, our every desire. But like any good father, God doesn't always give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. We're separated by God from our sin, and so we need an intercessor, someone to be for us on our behalf. We need a mediator who can reconcile sinful humanity with the perfectly holy God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only mediator. And so because the priests would undoubtedly sin, their sacrifices would have to be done over and over and over again. We need a permanent solution. The writer of Hebrews says of Christ, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Because God is holy and just, he can't excuse sin and he can't minimize it. And yet we have earned death and separation through our sin. We need, and our only hope, is a perfect human substitute to satisfy God's wrath. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus' death has satisfied God's wrath against us. But even if our slate was, was uh, cleaned, even if we were fully forgiven, we'd, we'd be back at square one. We'd still need to be perfectly righteous in all that we do. We need a representative who will obey completely for us. Jesus is the new and better Adam that resisted the serpent's temptation, and he rebukes Satan using God's word. Jesus fully trusts in his Father, and he doesn't sin. As we've been going through Romans, uh, you'll uh, remember Romans 5. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, speaking of Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, talking of Jesus. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so we are made righteous in God's eyes through the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Israel, they all failed to expand God's kingdom. There were successes, but ultimately failures as well. We need a human representative that would fulfill God's original purpose to rule over creation. Hebrews 2.9 says of Jesus, it says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He has authority over heaven and earth, and by that authority, his disciples are to spread his kingdom to all the nations. So then what we need, what we really need, is a holy human 
a perfect person, a God-man, and only Jesus can accomplish that. He was born of a woman through the power of the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, because God is fully, uh, fully man and fully God, He alone can be what we need, and only He can give us what is needed. But Jesus does more than that. In Paul's plea to the, the church in Corinth, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He created everything. He's omnipresent, but in His coming, He enters into His own creation. Like an author who writes himself as a character in his book, like an artist who paints himself into a living mural to love and to change and to warn and to encourage and laugh and cry with his creation. So, God is restoring all things. Jesus is the way by which restoration happens. And God forgives, and Jesus is the means of that forgiveness. God is a God of reconciliation, and Jesus is the mediator. God gives us his law that is good. Jesus teaches it with self-authority. He clarifies it. God commands, uh, God's commands are derived from his very character. Jesus lives out the character of God. Jesus is an example of the Father's love for us, but he also shows us what perfect love for the Father should look like. The life of love that Jesus lived include caring for the outcast, healing those he could, forgiving those that would repent, teaching, discipling, spending time with sinners, at times saying hard but true things, admonishing and encouraging, weeping with those that weep, and rejoicing with those that rejoiced, serving, sacrificing, humbling self, proclaiming truth, and being obedient to his Father in heaven. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came to sympathize, to identify with us. He knew the joy at times... He knew the frustration at times. He was a baby, a child. He knew what it was like to be overlooked. He had human weaknesses. He had limitations. He became tired, thirsty, hungry. He could be injured. He suffered. He died. He had to learn to walk and talk, to read and write, and how to be obedient. Jesus the, the idea that Jesus had to learn to be obedient doesn't mean that in any sense he was rebellious. In any sense that he had to call back his disobedience, Scripture tells us he obeyed his parents. As an adult, he obeyed the law. Jesus completely fulfills the will of his Father, perfectly abiding in his love. He was pleasing to him. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He was without sin. All these things were true in the eternal triune nature of the Son. 
When Scripture describes Jesus as learning obedience, it means that he, that he actualized it, that he experienced it on earth. Jesus had a full range of emotions. He experienced all the emotions that you and I do. And yet Jesus experienced emotion and did not sin. The reality is that sin is a failure to do what is right, what is holy, what is good. And mankind wasn't created sinful. We were created to be holy. We were created to be righteous. So Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were, they were truly human. We are the ones in an abnormal situation. Experientially, that's all we know. That's all we've seen in ourselves and in others. We are broken, but Jesus wasn't. And so what is humanity as it was designed to look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. Before Jesus came, we could only imagine. Jesus provides the perfect example of what it means to love God and others lived out. Finally, the incarnation demonstrates God's love for us because God's gift of love is unbreakable. They don't make things like they used to. Most of what we have is temporary, disposable. We're fickle. We're always looking for the newest, greatest, most technologically advanced thing. And I don't know that I can say that all good gifts will be long-lasting, but maybe a good gift will have a long-lasting memory like my $6 million man doll, I mean, action figure. <laughs> but a gift that breaks right away, like my Star Wars lightsabers, well, that's a huge bummer. Because God's gift of love is Christ himself, that love will never fail. It will never let us down. It will never fade away. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son. From eternity past, Jesus was spirit, like the Father and the Holy Spirit still are. He became a human embryo, then an infant, a little boy, and then a man. And right now at the hand of the Father and forevermore, Jesus has a resurrected and perfect yet human body. Jesus is fully devoted to being the God-man forever. Another great passage from Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus will be the mediator between God and us forever. God's love is demonstrated through uh, his love for the world and especially for his love for those that are in the family of God, that are trusting in that righteousness of Christ. The Father loves the Son more than anything else. We who are trusting in Christ for our salvation are then in Christ. And so God is eternally pleased with His Son. And because we are in Christ, we have peace with God, and He is well pleased, as Luke 2 says says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Our security is in the righteous one, in Jesus. It is his righteousness that save us. It will never fail. It will never break. It will never run out of battery. All right, 
to connect what I've been talking about uh, this morning. The sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple, these are not just good analogies for Christ. They were put in place so that we would understand our sin, the need for a Savior, our inability to save ourselves. In fact, I think it would be more accurate to say not that Jesus is the temple, but the temple, everything in it, everything associated with it is found in Jesus. The priesthood is Jesus. The sacrifice for sins is Jesus. These pictures don't just point us to Christ. They, they expand our comprehension of God's economy, the way God works. It expands our capacity for understanding this, this reality, this immaterial reality of God and His cost and His effort to bring us into right relationship with Him. And so these threads are woven throughout Scripture into this beautiful tapestry. They are evidence of both God's sovereignty, but also His love for His people. A gift that is intentional, has impact, it demonstrates care and knowledge of who you are and what you need. God shows that He cares about His people through every detail of history. Guys, that history is not over. God is still writing it. Remember, we are still playing a part in that. We have a part in God's redemptive plan. God's gift is more than personal. It is the person of Jesus. And so he was born in a stable into the mess and the messiness of life. And he wants to come into the messiness of your life as well. We have the perfect example in Christ. We need to ask ourselves, how then do we live as children of God? We look to the Son of God. How did Jesus tra- treat his friends and his enemies? What were Jesus' priorities in good times? How did he deal with stress and trials and temptations, persecution, suffering? Though we won't image him perfectly, though we will fail, we have an example of what we were created to be. And so Jesus came to identify with us so that we would be given the identity of the children of God. The final piece in the significance of the priesthood is that we are brought into God's initial purpose for man, to spread God's name and reputation throughout the world. We're to bring glory and praise to him in all that we do. Peter declares, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The present reality for those who are in Christ is that we are part of God's royal priesthood of believers. The implication is that we are, we are many priests in Christ. As holy priesthood, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God to, through Jesus. Well, what are these sacrifices? Well, we do that when we give thanks for, for Jesus for his once and for all sacrifice on the cross. When we trust in that, when we rest in that. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16 says, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So when we share the gospel, when we sing praises to God, we are acting as priests. 
Each of us are many tabernacles, many temples in Christ. We're indwelled by God, the Holy Spirit. We're clothed in a holiness that is not our own, so that in service to God, we would image His likeness for the world around us. Church, we are loved incredibly. We can have patience then. We can love then. We can serve others then. God cares about the details of history. He is here with you in the details of your life. You have been given the greatest gift in Christ. The creator of the universe came to die that you would know and be known by him and live with him forever. Christ's righteousness allows us to know with confidence our destiny. We can live as sons and daughters of the king. We can rest. We can give him our worry and our anxiety. I open sharing how Christ, uh, how his coming is a demonstration of God's love. My hope is that you would walk out of here knowing that you are loved by God and that that love would be contagious. So how will these truths about God's love and the gift of Jesus affect you? How will they change you? I hope it's praise and I hope it's trust. If you're not a Christian, turn to him. If you're weary, rest in him. And if he's God, follow him. Let me pray. Thank you, God, for the greatest gift in Christ. God, that we would be uh, saved, that you would give us exactly what we need. God, but um, help us as well uh, to rest in that, that truth, to have confidence in that truth, to be uh, excited, to rejoice in that truth, God, uh, that, we, that your love is unbreakable, that it will never end, um, that we're secure in the righteousness of Christ. Um, God, we thank you for that. We can't thank you enough. God, let that be uh, heart-changing for us. Let that gospel just... Uh, drench us with that truth, that we would be changed, that we would be different, that we would be uh, your image bearers, your priesthood to all, um, all around us, God. We thank you, we praise you, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.com dot org.